But the truth is, for so many of those collectibles, there's not a clear path to doing that, to achieving those dreams. So I think people in this crypto winter are realizing that a lot of the hype might have blinded them. Hi, I'm Julia Halperin, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. It might be the dog days of summer here in New York, but over in the metaverse, we are firmly in the depths of crypto winter. When NFT NYC, the world's largest NFT conference, descended on Times Square last month, Bitcoin and Ether were both down more than 70% from what they were in November. That put a damper on the proceedings, and it's had a ripple effect on the once ballooning market for digital collectibles. In the first half of 2021, Christie's sold $93 million worth of NFTs. This year, they've sold just $4.8 million. At the same time, NFT players and platforms are being dogged by claims of insider trading and market manipulation, and many in the art world are reconsidering their relationship to the sector. To offer us a micro-history of this fast-changing market and a recap of how the crypto crash has transformed the NFT space, I spoke with Zachary Small, an Artnet News contributor and friend of The Art Angle. Zach is the author of the forthcoming book, Token Supremacy, How NFTs and a Little Money Laundering Turned Decentralized Finance into an Art Form. Here's our conversation. Thanks for joining us back on The Art Angle, Zachary. Thanks for having me. So first, tell me where you're calling from. I'm calling from inside my apartment after a very eventful week at NFT NYC, where I, as you know, a crypto person must, caught COVID. It seems like that was one of the big things to come away from NFT NYC. You didn't have like some strange bored ape swag. The other gift that you got in the gift bag was COVID. Yeah, I think either you got a bored ape shirt a boxed lunch or COVID-19. It had to be, or I guess you could get all of them at once, you know, great deal. But yeah, the conference was very interesting. I think one of my bigger takeaways is that the most interesting things that happen at a conference are outside of the meeting rooms. So we'll get to that. I generally kind of just want to talk about how the crypto crash has affected the NFT craze and look at that from a couple of different angles. It's obviously been a pretty big roller coaster ride for NFTs over the past few months. And as you said, you attended NFT NYC, which is the world's biggest NFT conference in Times Square. And it was at a time when the value of Bitcoin and Ether were down more than 70% from November. So even though the kind of real action takes place outside of the Marriott Marquis in Times Square, when you did pop by the main event, what was the vibe like? I would say that everyone that attended NFT NYC was excited to be there. There are a couple of memes going around ahead of the conference. One of them was about like people basically walking to the graveyard with all of their crypto losses. This is not a great time to come together. Like last year, when NFT NYC happened, it was coming like at this perfect time. There was a little bit slump in the crypto market, but NFTs were hot, hot, hot. And people had made a lot of money. They were talking about these 3,000 time returns. People were betting on like hats 
as I think Ben Davis wrote in his article about the conference. And you didn't really feel that at this year's conference. But at the same time, like there was so much positivity about building that whatever was coming next was in fact coming. That NFT technology at the very least wasn't going to go away and crypto wasn't going to go away. Volatility is part of its nature. So whenever there's a downturn, even as bad as this one has been, and most people agree this is probably the worst that it's been since the creation of cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, there is still hope in the air for better or worse. So as you mentioned, a lot of the action was actually happening outside of the conference at private parties and events. How was that crowd different from NFT NYC? Is this where like the real power brokers and major action happens? I would almost go as far to say that the two crowds were almost entirely different. If you were to go to the Marriott Marquis in Times Square to the NFT NYC conference, you're going to see a lot of people coming from crypto curious companies. You know, a Goldman Sachs person coming in. I saw someone with a Yale University name card. In terms of the actual power players, like the bigger artists in the NFT world, the collectibles, Board Ape Yacht Club, for instance, with Yuga Labs, they had their own festival going on on the side called Ape Fest. They weren't in attendance. What you saw in some of those side events, I think, was more indicative of the vibes and, and how things were changing and moving. When I was meeting with a lot of these crypto executives, VCs, and NFT artists, there are two main things that were coming up, which I found very interesting. Two main points of tension. The first point was that they all hate NFT as a brand now. The word NFT is like a dirty word to them, probably because it's become such a hot tagline in the press for like scam. At this point, there's just been so many scams that it's hard for them to delineate the legit business models that they're trying to build and stealing people's money. It's also just confusing, right? You say NFT, I think most people would recognize what the word is. Yeah, at least, a, you know, this is a thing out there. This is a technology. People's eyes glaze over. So the second thing that was a little bit more in hushed tones around the conference and in these outer meetings that executives and VCs were having was around crypto itself. And, you know, this oftentimes happens during downturns or recessions or crypto winters where suddenly if you're not making a lot of money, you're like, oh, what's the use of this thing? Why do I care about crypto? And a lot of these people were saying, if I could, if it wouldn't cause a revolt in so many supporters of my company, I would just accept regular USD you know, I would accept a credit card for people to buy the NFTs. I would convert it myself into Ethereum and put it on the blockchain because they recognize that there is a plateau happening in the amount of collectors that they can onboard into this system. And that in a crypto winter like this, fiat money starts looking very, very nice. Well, and it's interesting too, because I think one of the things you hear publicly from a lot of true NFT believers is that the crypto crash is an opportunity. It's going to create an avenue for real creativity and innovation that wasn't possible in the kind of 
bull market for NFTs? Are there people who actually truly believe that? Yes. And I'll say having reported on this and writing a book about it, NFTs and the underlying technology, I feel pretty confident is here to stay. I'm not confident that's great for consumers, but in terms of storing information on a blockchain in a place where it's much less likely to be lost is something good. I think if you also look outside of the art world for a moment at companies like Ticketmaster, Ticketmaster could sell you an NFT, just not call it an NFT, call it a ticket. And this is something that exists on the blockchain. You don't have to worry about scalpers as much or robots buying the tickets because they have to sort of authenticate themselves to get the ticket. It's a memento. So a musician that's selling a concert ticket, maybe they release some sort of artwork or something special with it, right? So that ticket becomes something that has utility in so many different other avenues. And it has value on a secondary market where you as a ticket holder could sell it if you couldn't go to the concert or if that concert becomes the next Woodstock, right? There are a lot of ways that this technology is malleable. And that's the most important part. And that's why you get a lot of crypto artists and boosters talking about NFTs like the internet. Before, if you were doing a web company, you know, you were just known as this internet company. It wasn't like you're Amazon or Facebook. We didn't talk about those companies delineated in the service they provided. We just talked about them as a web company. NFTs are at that point as well. And eventually, I think that's going to start segmenting out as companies like Ticketmaster or Samsung start really digging into the industry. And do you see signs that that kind of innovation is coming and also that it maybe has more of an opportunity to coalesce because of the crypto crash? I think everyone wants to tell you there's more opportunities for it to coalesce because of the crypto crash. I'm always a little bit suspicious of that. That's a a little bit looking at the glass and saying it's half full instead of half empty. But certainly these larger companies that will ultimately change how our society and consumer culture works are slow moving corporations. So it will take time and it makes sense that they're building right now a year after the big boom. When you look at a place like Samsung, you know, they hired an NFT consultant, a man named Ari Goldstein, you know, a couple months ago. So he's working on that. If you go to the super rare gallery, which is one of the NFT marketplaces, which opened a pop-up gallery in Soho, the majority of the monitors that they're showing their NFTs on are from Samsung and Samsung is a sponsor there. So there's little ways that if you're very observant, you'll start noticing some of the business connections and the building happening. Another person who's probably interesting to bring up in this conversation is Jody Rich. Jody Rich is one of the founders of NFT NYC. He's from Australia and he is sort of a veteran of the tech industry. He was in telecommunications. He was in web 1.0, web 2.0. One of the things that he said to me when I interviewed him, which just kind of like raised my eyebrows a little bit, was when we talked about Twitter and social media. And, you know, he said he was one of the first users of Twitter. And these social media platforms are so important to him because of the data that they provided. And I said, oh, a lot of people in recent years have been very suspicious of the data that social media is providing about them. He said he was angry that they didn't provide more data. 
that he kept pushing the social media companies actually to release more data to companies like, you know, web analytic companies that could be sold. What Web3 will be and what NFTs will be used for is still being decided. But NFTs are a way where users or companies can make it so all of that data on the blockchain could be sold. So the web analytics that we've seen in Web2 are kind of coming along for the ride, but on steroids, that's one possibility in NFTs in the future, which is to say that there's a lot of opportunity for money to be made still, even during a crypto slump. And so someone like Jody, who's saying there is more potential in the data we can extract from Web 2 or Web 3, what does he want then out of NFTs exactly? So when I interviewed him, I wanted to get more information on the conference and how he came into NFTs. And of course, I report on the art world. I'm interested in artists and what he thought about all of that. And he told me he's not really interested in the art side. He's never met people. He's one of the few people who's never met people. (laughs) He's one of the few people who's never met people. But for Jody, it's really about the consumer experience in the business. He doesn't own any art NFTs. He owns a lot of shoe NFTs, is what he told me. And so ApeFest, I mean, that's sort of an interesting example because board apes were such a symbol of If we're in crypto winter now, I think they're a real symbol of crypto summer. Their prices just went up crazy in probably the past three to six months. And now they've come down considerably. Can you talk a little bit about the trajectory that we've seen with Bored Apes or another project that was doing really well at crypto's peak and has since declined? Bored Apes is very interesting because... They're really the first collectible to popularize this idea of utility, that when you're buying an NFT, it's not just buying something that you could trade. You're getting into a community. You're finding a roadmap. There's a return on investment. The elements of kind of this hedge fund philosophy that is so in the nature of NFTs came to the surface through the Board Ape Yacht Club. There are also so many relevant issues that came up when Board Ape Yacht Club launched, such as the anonymity of the founders, which was later revealed by BuzzFeed News to be two men that were friends from Florida who were hiding behind a chief executive, a woman named Nicole Muniz, who was doing a lot of the publicity for them. You know, those elements of not knowing who created the collectible, you know, those are real issues of responsibility. I think that's an issue with Board Ape still, even though now we know who made it, they're around, they're at Ape Fest. But the people that went to Ape Fest this year, at least the sources that I spoke to, they said it was a shit show, quite honestly. That there were VIPs who had paid six figures for their apes that were waiting in line at a burger bar. If that's the image of the Web3 future, like waiting for hours in a line for a burger, it's not so compelling a story as the rise of the monkeys and all the money and the celebrities who are putting in. And ahead of Ape Fest and NFTMYC, a lot of those celebrities were actually taking their bored ape profile pictures off of Twitter. So it does feel a little bit twilighty. There was a lot of talk going on within the conference of people saying, oh, the bored apes are never going to release that video game that they're claiming to build. Like A lot of their roadmap right now hinges on 
this Web3 video game where the board apes that you own will be in this universe and people have bought land. It's a little bit of a mess. And I, I think that's the challenge for collectibles as a whole is to make good on their promises of a roadmap and a return on investment. But the truth is for so many of those collectibles, there's not a clear path to doing that, to achieving those dreams. So I think people in this crypto winter are realizing that a lot of the hype might have blinded them. You mentioned the celebrities that, you know, removed their profile picture NFTs. Was that some kind of coordinated thing? Like, did it just so happen that a bunch of them removed them around the same time? And who are we talking about here? We're talking about people like Jimmy Fallon. Madonna changed hers to, I think it's a world of women NFT. It's hard to say if it's coordinated. I can't confirm that so much. I will say the celebrities didn't come across these NFTs just like organically. A lot of times they're introduced by agents. Guy Osiri, who's Madonna's manager, as well as U2's manager and a bunch of other pretty big acts. There's also Board Ape's manager. So he's one of the big reasons why a lot of celebrities got into NFTs, got their Board Apes. And when I spoke to a lot of executives in the NFT world, they're all sort of saying, he's the celebrity whisperer for them. He's the main guy to go to. And so what we've discussed at this point is painting a picture of a moment where the big companies are starting to ramp up their efforts and are thinking about these sort of infrastructural ways to use NFTs. And at the same time, the early adopters and the pioneers are fizzling out a little bit or, you know, the carbonation has fizzled out of the soda. Are there certain segments of the NFT market that have proven more resilient than others? That's a great question. I think resiliency is a difficult term to define, especially in the NFT market, which is still young. We're talking about a year, whereas usually we can talk about at least a decade, right? In the art market, we're able to talk about multiple decades. A lot of people, however, are looking at a recent NFT sale at Christie's, which brought in $1.6 million. This was kind of like a who's who of the crypto world. You know, you had Beeple, you had Mad Dog Jones. And not only that, this was like Noah Davis's swan song at Christie's as their NFT whisperer. He recently announced just ahead of NFT NYC, actually, that he was leaving Christie's to join Yuga Labs as the crypto punk director of the brand. Again, this Christie's sale brought in $1.6 million. It was 27 lots that sold. It was well estimated too. There wasn't any sort of crazy multi-million dollar sales like with the $69 million Beeple sale that launched everything last year. It was good. I think when you actually look deep into the auction though, there weren't a lot of bidders and there was a lot of movement from Christie's to get the bidders who did show up in the room. So for instance, people showed up at the opening during NFT NYC. He was there. Ryan Zurer, a collector who bought people's first real physical sculpture, 
was also there. And he bought an artwork. A lot of... Didn't Ryan Zarr help curate the right, most he, recent yeah. sale? Yeah. I think when you look at how the sale was organized, it becomes clear that this was a very tightly choreographed event. And it had to be that way because of where the market is. This wasn't necessarily a place where they were finding new collectors or they were shocked by a lot of bidding. Certainly, you know, there are a couple examples, but by and large, the NFT art market and especially the auction market is becoming increasingly stagnant among a handful of players. Because I remember, obviously, auction houses after the 69 million people sale were leaning really heavily into NFTs and they managed to, in record time, generate hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. How does that compare to where we are this year so far? There's only been a few million of revenue this year so far compared to last year, as you said, just astronomical amounts. Now, like, you know, we don't want to be crazy here. Like, of course, the bubble was going to burst. I think everyone who's not super hyped up realized that. So it was probably never going to reach what we had last year. But the level that it is at definitely shows that, like, this can be a segment of business. Is it going to be a growing segment? Still to be determined. I think that a lot of the issues that the market is experiencing right now also go back to the February Sotheby's sale of uh, 104 CryptoPunks that just kind of imploded. From what I understand, there are a lot of people there who were either invited by the auction house or were very crypto curious. This was like in one of the biggest swells for NFTs, probably the second biggest swell for NFTs after the people bump. These people showed up to the sale. It was a marquee event. This is not a usual sale at all. And then the collector pulled out and rugged Sotheby's and wrote a meme saying that he had fooled them all along. And then he used the Sotheby's low estimate to collateralize his NFTs for a loan through another company. So this was embarrassing for Sotheby's. It was embarrassing for the auction world. It deterred a lot of the crypto curious buyers who were in the room, who watched this unfold, who were at this VIP party. And it, I think, said to a lot of the people coming from NFTs and from crypto, why bother going through an auction house when you could collateralize your NFTs through a decentralized finance company, get that money, put it into the NFT market, and make more money that way and, and still hold on to your crypto pucks, right? It came back to this essential part of NFTs, which is to cut out the middlemen. Why go to Christie's? Why go to Sotheby's? It's mainly for provenance and for bragging rights, which still holds currency for sure, but maybe not what it once had. Well, and it is interesting that Noah Davis, who, as you mentioned, was Christie's NFT whisperer who organized the 69 million people sale, he announced last week that he is leaving the auction house and he's going to work for Yuga Labs, which is the company that owns board apes. So what was the significance of that announcement in the middle of this big week for NFTs and in the NFT world? The announcement was huge for a variety of reasons. One of them, of course, was like, again, the symbol of legitimacy. Here's the guy who's largely credited with the Beeple bump. 
He's from a big institution called Christie's, and he's decided to leave the traditional art world and join in the crypto swell. Well, smaller crypto swell now. That was one point. The other point was that before it was officially announced that he would be joining Yuga Labs, the day before, and I, I believe the week before it was announced, the price of CryptoPunks went up because there was a huge flurry of trading. And a lot of very big collectors, like there's a collector called Gary V, billionaire crypto guy, you know, he was trading, he was buying up CryptoPunks. There are a lot of people that suddenly became interested in a collectible that until then had its price plummeting. As the price was plummeting, and then suddenly there was a huge swath of buyers, a lot of people asked what was happening. It looked like insider trading to them. There are accusations of that on Twitter. And certainly the NFT market is no stranger to insider trading. It happens quite a bit. At NFT NYC, I was at a couple of dinners where you know I can confirm that there were what seemed to be elements of insider trading, that people had knowledge that Noah was going to Yuga Labs in the weeks before it was officially announced. And they had told you know an elite number of NFT collectors that it was happening. And those collectors bought CryptoPunks. It's interesting because it gets this broader question of sort of what the NFT industry is. You know, is it a securities market or is it something that is more freewheeling like the art market? Because for example, if you are in the art market and you learn that an artist is going to join a bigger gallery and you buy a work by that artist at auction with that knowledge that that artist's prices are later going to go up, that's not insider trading. That's business as usual. So it begs the question, where do NFTs fall on that continuum? Well, you're completely right. It's widely accepted in the art world that you can act on insider information and you can buy up an artist before they're going to have that hot exhibition or before the hot exhibition is announced or if they're going to auction. There are a lot of ways that collectors in the know and gallerists in the know are able to sort of goose the market. I think I would probably turn the question a little bit backwards, though, and to say perhaps NFTs are showing us, as they are claiming the mantle of art, that the insider trading that so frequently happens in the art world should be looked at more by regulators. And the fact that it hasn't for so many decades is the issue. We're seeing through NFTs and art, as much as we talk about art being financialized, right? Over the last 40 years, the price of art has gone up. It's seen as an investment. It's better than the stock market. We hear all of these chants over and over, especially when we report on the market. You hear less sort of about the opposite route of how the financial world takes on these elements of the art market and of the obscurity and sort of the flexibility of the rules. Who can define art? What is art? What is insider trading when it comes to a canvas and paint? But I think as some of our definitions of what an asset looks like or what money is even are changing because of crypto, whether or not crypto stays or goes, I think it has fundamentally changed our ideas about what money is. It calls into question a lot of the regulations that have and have not actually happened. When NFTs first 
burst into the mainstream in 2021, boosters and crypto artists talked a lot about how the technology had the power to solve a bunch of structural problems with the way the art business works. Things like IP theft and copyright infringement, the removal of gatekeepers, and a more equitable distribution of resale rights. And it seems like the end of the initial boom is a good time to assess how much progress has been made on those fronts. What do you think? (laughs) Uh, That's my answer, is a laugh. You know, I think what's actually changed, again, as we look at this like micro history, is a changing of priorities. You don't really hear people talking so much about getting rid of the gatekeepers anymore, especially when they're trying to gain legitimacy. A lot of that talk was produced in the heyday of the Beeple Bomb, in the heyday of people releasing literally anything onto the NFT market and making hundreds of thousands of dollars. That is a speculative boom. And in a speculative boom, there's a lot of magical thinking that takes place where you can leap from one illogical idea to another and people will accept it. People will follow you on that bridge. The problem is that has to end at some point and it has ended now. And so when people are talking about collectibles or our NFTs or your Toyota Hyundai NFT, if you will, they're talking about different things now. So you have the utility in collectibles. I don't know about the car. I assume there's some sort of collectability. Maybe you can drive your NFT home. By utility, you mean I have a board ape NFT. It's cute. It's got sunglasses, but it also gets me into parties. Exactly. Whereas the art NFT is really, it's a piece of art. You're collecting it. Sometimes it does come with utility or sometimes the artists will work within the medium of the NFT and sort of critique that technology, right? Even Damien Hurst, he created something called The Currency, which is an NFT. And we called it The Currency for a reason. It's a talk about money and, and crypto coins. And you could keep it or you could burn it and get something real. So there's a little bit of gamifying within all aspects of this. You know, it is the gamification of the economy. That's one through line from Web 2 that is not changing. When it comes to talking about gatekeepers, though, a lot of these people want the gatekeepers. So even a platform like Artblocks, which did hundreds of millions of dollars in sales last year. And Artblocks is probably one of the most successful art NFT companies to date, especially one that's sort of autochthonously come up from the crypto world. They've now partnered with Pace to work with their artists and to collaborate across Pace Verso and their own platform. So I think what we're seeing now as there was this diffuse spread of pudgy penguins and crypto kitties and bored apes and the whole zoo, now we're seeing the great singularity or the great centralization would probably be a better way of saying it, where as much as these companies talk about DAOs decentralizing, what it's more so coming down to are traditional structures of shareholding and shareholder value and hierarchy and corporation that are what give companies ultimately the stability they need to have a long-term business plan. You can make your money. Making money in many ways is easy. It's about how you keep it that's hard in a speculative boom like this. Well, and it's interesting to bring it back to the recent Christie's sale, where, as you said, it's mostly 
the more established NFT artists that are reliable money makers now. It's not these people that you've never heard of who have been online for two weeks. And so it seems like not only are NFT or crypto businesses looking to partner with traditional gatekeepers and in other industries, but also the NFT business itself now has its own cast of gatekeepers. And there is a hierarchy that has been set that is now hard to upset. That's true. Yeah. As someone looking at digital art and interested in digital art and someone that grew up with the internet, I think it's great that there are artists who can speak to what that culture and that environment is like. There is so much talk. And at this point, you know, it's kind of exhausting of what is a people? What does it look like? Is it art? Is it worth it? Is it too lewd? These are questions and rehearsals that people have been doing since photography came on the scene. I mean, the Met did not have a photography department in the 1800s. They had a photography department in the late 1900s. It takes a long time for, I think, major institutions to catch up. And the fact that we live in this space where time kind of doesn't exist during COVID, but also the, the timelines of adoption are so shortened that there's already been so much acceptance so quickly, you know, it kind of makes sense, I think for the NFT and that we will see someone like Beeple or Pac or Eric Calderon, who's creator of Art Blocks and, and does squiggles. You'll see these people coming up again, Tyler Hobbs, generative art, creating art from algorithms so that the algorithm outputs the work. And there's this idea of chaos and spontaneity. I mean, it all follows from conceptualism in the 1960s. This is not stuff that the art world can look at and say, you know, whose child is that? In many ways was inspired from the art world. What makes it interesting is a lot of the people now creating are programmers and they don't have a lot of the context. So you get these amazing moments of historical inaccuracy or misreadings, uh, which I think is how the world produces new movements. And you talked a little bit about the concentration of some of the NFT initiatives and NFT projects. I'm wondering if you've seen a similar trend on the art side. There was this period last year when it felt like every single art business was trying to get into NFTs. Like, I don't know if an art shipper launched their NFT, but I would not be surprised. It was just this complete stampede. And since then, we've seen major layoffs at crypto companies like Gemini and Coinbase. And so I'm wondering how much might that impact art companies' investment in and enthusiasm for NFTs? It's a good question. I think it definitely disincentivizes galleries and artists who were just creeping into it, like they had their toe in, but they hadn't fully committed yet. I think the people that are committed are pretty much pilled in. They're not going to change. Like Pace is not going to get rid of their NFT stuff anytime soon. They just launched a new partnership. Major galleries are going to follow what the artists do as well. The extra thing that I would mention too is that there are a lot of pretty high up art world people who are moonlighting as consultants in the NFT industry. And they just don't want their name attached to NFTs. That is the hot gossip. What are they doing? They're working with either artists or galleries or NFT companies to help them sort of navigate what an art NFT is and how to curate. 
that's the biggest thing that you hear from the NFT side of things is they actually really want a lot of curation now that they're sorely missing that. And I would say it's true. If you were to go to some of these pop-up NFT galleries, it gives screensaver vibes. So are these art world people, is their whole purpose just to say this one's bad and this one's good? Well, I'm not going to badmouth curators the way that you will, Julia, but <laughs> you know, I think part of that is true. I think it is to help people understand the value of the NFTs that they're putting out there. As much as a lot of the marketplaces and the people that founded them talk about their own interest in art and how they dabbled and, and what they want to put up. And, you know, there's a lot of these marketplaces, especially now with the market not looking so great trying to market themselves as fine art NFTs, they don't have that expertise. And they don't have the connections that the contemporary art market and all of its financialization require to be able to goose the wheels a little bit and be able to, quote unquote, predict who's going to sell hot and who is not. So these kind of consultants are able to come in and provide that insider perspective that can lend a degree of credibility, whether or not their names are attached. And so with this sort of whirlwind tour of the NFT world and its intersection with the art world that you've given us, I'm going to ask you to look into your very special Zachary Small crystal ball and tell me one year down the line, what do you think the NFT landscape is going to look like and what is its relationship going to be to the art world? So I'll do you better because when I'm writing the book, I'm really trying to think about what will people want to read in 10 years from now. The book will be out in less than 10 years, <laughs> but I'm still trying to think of a longer timeline, which it has been an interesting experiment because it's so anathema to what NFTs are, which is like immediate and frictionless. When we look in the future, in 10 years, I think that a, a lot of these debates that are a little bit silly about, is it art? Is it not art? Is NFT the medium or is it merely a platform for the art? All these questions will be sorted out and will be a little less loaded than they are right now, still continue to be. I think the rise of digital art is going to be here to stay in many ways. Curators have taken notice. The infrastructure that NFTs provide for provenance will become much more integrated both into contemporary art auctions and those platforms, but also in the way that museums are working around NFTs. The thing that I'm always reminded, all of my best editors remind me this as well whenever I try and pitch a story, is the question, what are the artists doing? If the artists are making NFTs, the market and the museums have to accept NFTs. There's no getting around that. That is cultural production. And that is why so much of what is focused on in this battle for token supremacy is focused on the artist. Whether or not you want this to become some sort of financial juggernaut or to sell Samsung TVs or your Hyundai car, it's going to need to be focused on this sort of relationship between visual culture and the economy that has now become so explicit and so intertwined that in a weird twist of events, the starving artist now has so much of the economic power. And so that's what we're going to see continue to develop. 
Well, I think that's a perfect place to end. Thank you so much for joining us on The Art Angle, Zachary. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening. See you next week.